Hi, Christine here. Before we get on with the episode, we wanted to let you know about a very cool podcast that we think you should listen to. Hi, my name is Jack Oparafatoye. I'm the regional deputy editor for SciDev.net. SciDev is the world's leading source of reliable, authoritative news, views, and analysis on information about science, technology for global development. Our mission is to ensure that science and technology has a central role and positive impact on sustainable development and poverty reduction in the global south. SciDev is currently managed by the Center for Agriculture and Biosciences International, CAVI. About our podcast, The African Science Focus, it looks at science and health in sub-Saharan Africa and gives policymakers, development practitioners, academics and the general public a weekly insight into the impact that sciences have in Africa's least developed countries. African Science Focus offers researchers an opportunity to highlight their work to European and African audiences and gives African journalists a space where they can report on science. We want to enable journalists in these countries to speak about the impact of science on their own communities. And the podcast will give them a platform which allows them to take this message to the policymakers whose decision can impact on their lives. The African Science Focus is supported by a European Development Journalism Grant from the European Journalism Center. You can listen to our podcast on our website, www.sidev.net. Our podcast can also be found on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Listening Notes, Play FM, Podchaser, Podcast Addicts, and Overcast. We are on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as SciDevNet. And now, back to our regular episode. If you're taught most of your life that global health is unidirectional, that's what you went to school for, and that is what you're working on, then it's very difficult for you to accept that something can happen in the other direction. I think it's a wake-up call. I am hopeful that it will be a space for us to reimagine what it means to share different experiences for different outbreaks, for different issues. Welcome to your Digital Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Boynette from the Welcome Sanger Institute. And I'm Dr. Alice Matimba from Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences at the Welcome Genome Campus. So this is our season finale, and we have a great episode for you today. We'll be discussing the topical issue of decolonizing global health. As most of you are aware, uh, decolonizing global health has had some recent traction in the media and in scientific journals. We wanted to bring experts together to discuss what it really means to decolonize global health. And joining us on this panel discussion are three amazing guests. We have Dr. Renzo Ginto, an associate professor and inaugural director of the Global Health Program of St. Luke's Medical Center College of Medicine in the Philippines. And our second guest is Dr. Salma Abdallah, a research fellow in the Department of Epidemiology at the Boston University School of Public Health. And finally, we have Mr. Desmond Jumba, a health policy consultant based in Ghana who currently works with Operation Smile. Before we get into our discussion, I wanted to quickly uh, go around the room so that you can tell us um, about yourselves and about your work. And uh, I'll kick off with Renzo, who's smiling at us. And if you could kick us off with just saying who you are and what you're about. 
Thank you for having me in this amazing panel. Uh, good evening from Manila, Philippines. So I'm Renzo Guinto, as you've mentioned. I'm a physician by training. I actually just returned to the Philippines shortly before the lockdowns have begun. Uh, I just finished my doctorate at Harvard. And as you mentioned, I just joined a medical school to help build its uh, Center for Global Health and also to also establish my own company, which is PH Lab. PH is a nickname of my country, the Philippines, but also PH stands for public health and planetary health. And planetary health is, you know, in, in a nutshell, an exciting new field that brings together the health of people and the health of the planet. So as you know, we're confronting climate change and other forms of ecological crisis that impact our health in return. And so that is one of my focus areas. For the past two years, I've been very involved in this evolving discourse around decolonizing global health. I'll stop there. Amazing. Thank you. And congratulations on your doctorate. Um, I'll hand over to you, Salma, if you can kick us off about yourself. Good morning, everyone, from an, a really um, sunny day, I guess, here in Boston today in October, which I know Renzo and Desmond know doesn't really happen that much when you're in Boston. So, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a research fellow right now at Boston University, uh, finishing a DRPH as well at Boston University. I'm also the lead project director for the Rockefeller Foundation, Boston University 3D Commission on Determinants of Health Data and Decision Making. I'm a medical doctor, similar to Renzo, by training from Sudan. Um, and I've been here for the past four years, really just trying to, um, I guess, soak up as much knowledge as I can about public health from this side of the world and see how can we implement that back in Sudan or what can we learn from and what can we, uh, what do we have in Sudan that doesn't really need to be changed here and realizing more and more, especially with COVID-19, that really that the distinctions that we're making about public health systems in the world are not necessarily true. And that's a different conversation we can get to later. My focus is on social determinants of health, as I mentioned earlier, and my hope is that we can look beyond healthcare and health policies um, when we're talking about public health to policies in different sectors that can affect the health of the global population. Amazing. Thank you so much. And um, Desmond, if you can jump in. My name is Desmond Jumbam and I am a Cameroonian, you know, born and raised there. I spent the last 10 years or so in the U.S. getting my education in biology, bachelor's in biology, and then I, I with the intention of going to medical school. But then um, I, I realized that there's a huge need in improving health systems back home and, and kind of doing the work up front from a prevention standpoint. I got a master's in global health from the University of Notre Dame. And over the past three years, I've been working at the program in global surgery and social change at Harvard Medical School. What I did there was work with uh, ministries of health around the world in advising on, on how to improve access to surgical care, which is an aspect of global health that has been neglected for the longest time. Um, and there's quite a significant mortality and morbidity that comes from that. Um, but currently I work with, it's an NGO called Operation Smile. Uh, it's been around for almost 40 years, focusing on treating cleft lip and palate surgeries for children around the world. In my new role, I mostly work with the organization and advising them on how to build and strengthen surgical systems in developing countries. So, you know, going beyond the humanitarian mission model that has historically been the case for a lot of surgery, surgical organizations. Um, and then now I'm pleasantly involved in this decolonizing movement and very thrilled to be part of it. 
Wow, thank you so much. The three of you are so impressive and I'm so glad you agreed to come on board to have this wonderful discussion, an important discussion. To kick us off, Alice is going to start the conversation and we all, you know, jump in with thoughts and, and ideas. So over to you, Alice. So actually, you know, when we were preparing for this interview, you know, we did a bit of scouting and stalking of yourselves and just trying to understand where you you know, what, what has been driving you to, you know, focus a lot on this very important topic. I realized, you know, through, you know, the, the, the research we're doing that defining some of these concepts would be very useful for our audiences. So I just wanted to start by defining global health itself and just carrying on from, you know, Salma's paper, which came out recently, where you talked about the definition of, of, of global health and how current scholarship is sort of misaligned from what it really is. And how, you know, how this came about. I just want to hear from you, how do we define global health and how can we have a better understanding of it? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure we have enough time to define global health. I'm not sure anyone knows what is global health. Is. <laughs> so just uh, by way of, I guess, providing a timeline of why I thought I need to figure out what people write about when they think they're writing about global health is that I chose to, to apply for a, a global health master's program after my medical school training ended because I entered at the WHO in Geneva and my focus was really on social determinants of health and how that applies globally. So I came into a global health master's program with the thinking that we're going to be talking about issues that affect the global population. And unfortunately, or um, I guess it, it, it wasn't a fault of the program itself, but it turned out to be teaching me about things about my own country, about how to have cultural competency to deal with issues in low and middle income countries. And my thinking was, I didn't come here to learn about how to, uh, to be culturally competent when dealing with my country. And I understood later on that it made sense because the program was really designed as something that followed international health, which is really a field that focused on people working from high-income countries to try to uh, improve health issues in low- and middle-income countries. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a fault of the program itself. It was just a feature of the system, I guess, rather than a bug. It wasn't that it was that different from other programs. So that made me think. I read the definition of global health that really made me think about the field that I was uh, by Copeland and colleagues a few years ago, I think more than 10 years ago, was really about two things. Health from a global perspective, and they put two lines under global, but also thinking about the forces that shape health, so thinking about inequities, thinking about the social and economic forces that affect health. That was the definition that I, I knew about global health, but that wasn't really the practice that I was seeing or the papers that I was reading in, in global health journals. And that really made me wonder if we can quantify what people teach or what people really um, research when they, when they say the word global health. What we found in our recent paper, um, and I hope people had the time to read it, was just even though the field is advancing, it's growing, it seems to be something that is, at least for, for academic researchers, it's a, it's a lucrative field where it seems to be a lot of interest in funding, it stays the same in terms of scholarship, where we're just focusing on issues that affect low and middle income countries rather than looking at issues from a, a really global perspective. It also focuses on a biomedical way of thinking rather than thinking of social determinants of health, commercial determinants of health, political determinants of health, um, or anything beyond the biomedical component of, of health. So that's really where I am right now. I still don't know if we can define global health. It seems like the definitions we found, also we did a, a sub-analysis of definitions, they don't seem to agree on much 
I hope um, maybe Desmond or Renzo have a better definition of global health. As for <laughs> me, I still think we're looking for that one. Yeah, well, actually, you know, to, to put it even into more context, uh, perhaps Renzo could tell us more about maybe understanding what, because we, we're talking about decolonization. So if we're talking about decolonization, we must also understand what is colonization and how this intertwines with the global health phenomenon. So over to you, Renzo, perhaps you could, you know, shine more light onto this. <laughs> well, I wish I can uh, shine more light, but I think I'll just acknowledge the, you know, the challenge when it comes to this uh, pursuit of defining things. And like global health, the word decolonizing is another term that is, you know, confusing, that have many different interpretations. And sometimes I think maybe both for global health and decolonizing, is there really a need for a singular definition? And I guess that's a more decolonial way of thinking about it. Because if you go to decolonial literature, it acknowledges the pluralism or the pluralistic nature of, of knowledge, of ways of knowing. And so this idea that we can only arrive and agree on a singular definition, whether it's global health or decolonizing, I think is a colonial act in itself. But also on the other hand, and this is the tension that we decolonizers experience. And if there's no tension that you feel, then maybe you're not decolonizing enough. And so the tension is that, you know, I'm educated in the Western tradition. I got my doctorate from, you know, a prestigious university. And most of the frameworks and definitions that I learned, the research methods that I am exposed to are all, quote unquote, invented in the universities in North America and Europe. And then now I'm trying to decolonize. I'm trying to recreate global health, you know, as, as my own reinvention and so there's always this tension, right? It's interesting because when I went back to the Philippines, and I, as I've said, I'm building the Center for Global Health, I introduced a course in global health, and we use COVID as the case study for this course for medical students. But the papers that my students generated were all focusing on Philippine health issues related to COVID. And so they were asking, so how is this global health? And the way I'm reinventing it is that local health is global health, you know, global health at your doorstep. And it's really the global insight that you bring to the analysis and the solving of domestic problems that really makes it global health. And, you know, the way I define it, and speaking of definition, uh, one way I put it is global health is really a philosophy of health that acknowledges the interconnectedness of the outcomes, of the drivers. And I know, you know, the founding fathers of global health will probably, you know, uh, revolt. You know, why are you creating an, another definition, right? When there are already five definitions and we still haven't agreed on which of the five is the definition. But I think that is the contribution of the decolonial lens, that maybe there's room for a thousand flowers to bloom and to let global health and the coloniality be interpreted by different peoples from different corners in a way that is useful, you know, to their reality, to their needs. But obviously there's always this tension because on the other hand, we wanted some, not really uniformity, but, you know, there's a, an agreed upon language so that we can communicate. We know what this term is referring to. And so I'm sure I didn't really, you know, adjudicate on this problem but I'm raising this issue of there's beauty in diversity as well. Absolutely. I like the, the way that you've um, indicated that, you know, the pluralism of these definitions is probably 
how we should be looking at it and not just have a singular definition. Moving on to the next questioner, Christine. Thanks for that. Um, so kind of building on that, one thing you pointed out, Renzo, saying, you know, communication is one of the, the main factors is in, and not treating the global south as a, as a monolith. Just to frame this a little bit, a few months ago, uh, the BBC had an article that said the reason Africa was, wasn't being affected by COVID-19 as badly was because of poverty. Uh, and this article was quickly pulled and revised to remove the narrative after a single day. But the depiction of the global south is in written articles is sometimes one that reflects the power imbalance and reinforces the Eurocentric lens that perpetuates the narrative that the global south is helpless and needs to be saved. So I was just going to ask, like, how do you think written pieces, including articles, uh, research articles, impacts how we see global health in the global south? Um, and Desmond, you wrote a really great piece of how not to write about Africa, inspired by uh, Kenyan author Binyavanga Wainaina. And I was wondering if you can kick us off with this discussion um, and how media maybe depicts global south and how we can use it to decolonize um, global health. Sure. So the article I wrote, um, How Not to Write About Global Health, actually the initial title was How to Write About Global Health to mimic uh, Binya's um, article. And I guess the editors of BMJ Global Health felt the need to add the not there so that it's clear that this is what not to do. The article, you know, it's not only focused on writing, right? It's focused on on the entire system of global health. And it's really based on my observations. I'm not a historian. I've not really studied, you know, colonial history as much. I've read quite a bit on it, but I've worked, you know, over the past couple of years with academic institutions involved in global health and leading work in global health. Um, I now work at a big NGO that works in global health. Um, I got a master's in global health at the at the prestigious university in, in the United States. And Salma, I still... I. I don't understand uh, the, the definition after being through that, through that program. So, but that article was, was really born out of, out of frustration from what I was seeing, having been involved in global health. It's, it's the whole, like Christine, you say, there's, there's a certain way that global health researchers, especially from the quote-unquote North, write about African health issues in the South. It's still very colonialistic, you know, even in the way they approach research. Oftentimes, the research questions, the problems are identified by those in these prestigious universities and, and you know, Harvard and, and you know, London School and, and all of these. And the priorities are being set by them. I was also part of projects where, you know, even after these priorities are set, they then go on to, into the communities um, and then, you know, they conduct you know, workshops that claim that they've gotten ownership and buy-in from local, from the local stakeholders from the communities when that is really not, not the case. Um, and then after the data is collected, you know, return back to the prestigious universities and um, publish, analyze and publish the findings in journals that is often not accessible to those in those communities where the data is collected. What I was really pointing out was the hypocrisy that exists. Because unfortunately, I think people have figured out the right things to say in the global health community. So when you read the research publications, there's talks of, you know, you have to get the buy-in, you have to get the ownership of the local communities, you have to make sure that it's inclusive. There's the issue around authorships, right? So because now there's a whole push for having LMIC authors on your papers, everybody, I mean, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of, I've observed that people just go on to, to add random 
researchers from LMICs on their papers without actually taking them into consideration. And this absolutely bugs me. And I think that's going to be the challenge in decolonizing global health is people have figured out the right things to say. And so how do you actually get to the core? How do you get them to, to, to address these authorship issues and not just have people superficially put on papers, um, you know, making sure that you actually have equitable collaborations and partnerships from the very beginning? That's so important, like saying not gaming the system and uh, to be able to just appease funders or appease publications. And I wanted to jump quickly. Renzo has been nodding furiously. I wanted, you know, just jump in with your with your thoughts. No, I just uh, am fascinated by what Desmond have just said. You know, it seems people have already found the politically correct language. Yep. And, you know, these uh, stopgap measures that can be done in order to decolonize global health, quote-unquote. And we need to make sure that uh, this does not continue, this trend. In fact, I'm already now starting to think, maybe it's time to decolonize, decolonize global health itself, okay? (laughs) I like that. Right? Because every, you know, let's face it, every major school of public health has now organized their decolonizing global health conference. Right, Renzo, can I ask you to define decolonize, decolonize global health? Well, as I've said, there's so many interpretations. And actually, the coloniality, for instance, this concept of the coloniality that originated from Latin American scholarship, they're challenging the perceived universality and superiority of Western knowledge. So that is the coloniality. The colonization can be interpreted in two different ways. So if you go to literature, people actually use them in many different ways, but there are two are, are most uh, prominent. You know, one is the colonization in terms of the uh, return to indigenous uh, roots, you know, the original state, which might not be possible actually in this world of, of, you know, in a very globalized post-COVID world, right? On the other hand, the decolonization that some scholars describe is the undoing of the colonial legacies. And a lot of that is, you know, rooted in the political systems, and also the culture. So, you know, they're slightly similar, but also different. And then the coloniality is, again, as I've said, challenging this Western notion. I think decolonizing global health is still yet to kind of decide, you know, which one are we referring to. And the tendency is that organizations and individuals are now becoming satisfied with the cosmetic measures. Oh, let's put people of color in the advisory board. Oh, let's add African-sounding names in the authorship of the research article. These are cosmetic superficial measures. We need to go beyond this, interrogate the deep-seated colonial uh, roots of health policy making of national health systems. Maybe the reason why universal health coverage is not being achieved is because these health systems are really imprisoned in these, you know, colonial past that that prevent these health systems from growing. Even UHC can be interrogated from a colonial or decolonial lens. Is that really a universal aspiration or, again, another form of Western imposition? A lot of questions to ask. Yeah, if I may quickly add just here... um... So this is uh, so funny, and thank you very much for writing that, Desmond. And I, I really think about whether this is just becoming a cliche. It's it's funny that I I received a few requests to to speak following my article, and I wonder if I ha- would have received those um, 
if I were still in Sudan or where, whether I would have been able to actually write those articles or publish them. But it's funny about the African sounding names slash institutions that have to be from LMICs to publish papers. I had two incidents recently where I wrote papers about Sudan and I got an editor comment back. You don't have an author from an LMIC on your paper. So we're sorry to reject your paper. And it's funny to be uh, to have your um, entire life experiences, given that I'm here for four years and I've lived in Sudan for more than um, a quarter of a decade, for someone to tell me that is not your lived experience. But I guess I get it. They're trying, everyone is trying right now, as you said, to just be on the right uh, side of, I guess, the Twitter attacks that they might have. So they are satisfied with making sure do we have institutions from everywhere? Do we have authors from um, everywhere on the map? As, as you said, if we have a speakers list that is coming out, do we, do we know that we have something that looks good enough that we will not be attacked on Twitter or no one will say you're not really doing your part rather than really thinking about what does that mean? And I, and, and I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about um, Shay's really excellent article about the foreign gaze. If, some, if people have not read it about in, in BMJ Global Health, because that really makes us think about what do we really want to get when we talk about power imbalances and who writes about what? What is really the final goal of our writing, of our scholarship? Is it to improve the health of, of people or is it really just to add, I guess, another line on our CVs? And that makes a difference, whether you are from that country or whether from, you're from a different country. And one last thing I would say on decolonizing, decolonizing global health, I guess just also acknowledging that those of us who are talking about decolonizing the global health right now are people who are at least educated in, in uh, Western universities, if not living in Western countries, I guess, right now, which that would mean me at this point. So what does that really say about the movement? Are we just re creating a new elitist movement from low and income countries? And, and we saw an opening because there, there is a lot of push right now to be equitable from northern countries. So they look at us, the people who we are closer to them in terms of language, in terms of, uh, of way of thinking, just because of the fact that we studied in the US, most of us, and that makes it easier for them to take that box. But what does that say about us? Is it also just a really lucrative opportunity for all of us here who are talking about decolonizing global health? I don't know. I think we just have to ask ourselves that question every step of the way. That was actually going to bring me to the next uh, point that is quite clear when, you know, when you're reading all the different articles or the events that are taking place in decolonizing global health are happening in the global north. Pretty much all of us on this call are inspired on, on, about this global, decolonizing global health from the north. And whether the global south are even aware of this term, if I speak to my colleagues, they probably wouldn't even understand what is what, what I'm talking about, and yet shouldn't they be part of this movement? So what approaches should we be impressing upon to ensure that they're part of this movement, they're part of these conversations, they're part of, you know, uh, addressing this, uh, you know, this really major issue that affects them as well? How do you propose we should be doing this uh, so that we, it's more inclusive, actually, globally? <laughs> so I just want to echo what Salma uh, mentioned a while ago. We might end up becoming the neocolonizers, right? You know, graduates from Harvard, Boston U, Notre Dame, and then now saving the world and trying to decolonize. But actually, we ended up becoming neocolonizers. And so it's important to really be constantly reflexive throughout the whole process, every single day, 
you know, am I doing this for myself or am I really doing this for the bigger goal, you know, which is other people's voices become amplified. And ultimately, the goal is that other voices will be the ones to actually raise their issues and talk about, you know, these problems. And perhaps we will need to step back uh, and be in the background. I think that should be the goal for all of us. Having said that, I think we should acknowledge that the experience of going abroad, for instance, has some effect, for example, in terms of making you actually realize you know, all of these things. And, and that happened to me. It's like Salma was asking, you know, will I be invited to these conferences if, you know, I stayed in Sudan, if I even did not write about this article? So that has definitely a transformative role in terms of our individual reawakening, but also in opening doors to be part of those conversations that probably will not be accessible to us, for instance, if we did not uh, receive that, that gift of education overseas. You know, if you go back to the history of the Philippines, the colonizer of our country is actually a physician. So his name is Dr. Jose Rizal. He went to Europe, studied medicine, and that's when he realized, why is the Philippines still a colony of Spain when in fact these countries in Europe have been enjoying democracy and liberty for centuries? So when he came back, that has been, you know, his mission. So, so actually my country somehow was uh, decolonized or liberated uh, by a physician, by someone from, you know, the field of health. And that resonates a lot with me being a physician myself. By the way, the name Philippines, you know, or Philippines is named after a colonizer, Philip II, King of Spain. And so this is really very, you know, real to me. Yeah. So, so maybe, you know, g getting back on this uh, sort of um, track about how do we get more people from Global South involved? How can we provide, for example, you know, more training or capacity building, but also how do we get them to think from a decolonizing attitude or mentality in their research and as part of their own development and empowerment? For example, this, you know, obviously we're really interested in mentorship and, and capacity building and how can mentorship and capacity building play a role in decolonizing mindsets in global health research, particularly for people in Global South? I think that that's a really important question, and, uh, and 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 I think it would be remiss to not acknowledge that there have been a lot of efforts, at least that I'm aware of recently, just to make sure that the the conversation is situated in in settings that are the ones we're talking about here when we talk about decolonizing and global health. So in 2019, in the African Health Economics Conference, two colleagues of mine. Um, and I worked on a workshop to try to think about what does it mean to have an activist agenda for African researchers with a focus on a decolonizing global health lens and decolonizing health systems research as well lens. I, I come from an understanding that I'm really focused on the practical side of things. I do not claim to be an expert on the theory of decolonizing global health. So we really focused on what does that mean from a practical point of view. And researchers from the African continent over and over again talked about power imbalances in funding, power imbalances in um, teaching or learning opportunities to be able to actually conduct research in their own countries, but also power imba imbalances in being able to set the agenda of what are the programs that are being um, conducted in their own countries, but also what is the research and what is the outcome from the research that would be satisfactory for the country. So even if people are not using the term decolonizing global health, there was a strong sentiment and understanding of people, of researchers from across the continent that 
there are power imbalances that we need to deal with. And that was part of why I thought about that defining global health and what is considered global health research, because to me, global health overall is just a very well-oiled machine. And if we don't acknowledge the power imbalances and the fact that it's just a system set up right now where the end user of the benefit or the beneficiary is not really getting the benefit that we talk about in big conferences with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, then we're not really we're not really helping those who we talk about when we talk about global health. And I think that's that is where people stand right now. I think we we we're not really giving researchers in my home country. We're not giving researchers in in at least from my experiences, recent experiences in Africa, the benefit of the doubt of understanding that there are power imbalances and people are working on them. And we need to invest practically in changing those imbalances in talking about how is funding being set? Who sets the agenda when we talk about funding? Are researchers back home really equipped with the resources as well as the, um, the, the knowledge and the skills they need to be able to be owners of, of their work? So people are aware they know there are powers and imbalances. They want to change them. I think this is may- maybe our part here where we can use our voices to be able to change those power imbalances from those who set the agenda in the global north. Even if they're not using decolonizing global health, they know things are not right and they want to change them. I don't know if this meant. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with uh, what you're saying, Sama, and, and what you said, Renzo. I'm not sure it's our positions as you know, the quote-unquote elite who studied abroad to you know, bring the decolonizing agenda to people who are working on the ground. I think they're very much aware of this, as Sama has pointed out. Um, You know, after I wrote that article, I had quite a few physicians and researchers, uh, you know, one in Ghana reached out to me and said, you know, this is, you know, something that I've been struggling with for a while. And I've had, I've lost quite a bit of partners who, you know, see me as kind of a hard-headed, you know, African who wants collaborate because I demand certain things. But so I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that they are unaware of it. Um, they're very much aware of it. And perhaps the reason why, you know, we are the voices, you know, seem to be the voices of this movement is because we have you know, studied abroad and, you know, we have a different view as, as Renzo pointed out, you know, a lot of the leaders of the original fighting for independence were Africans, um, who had studied abroad and had come back and, and they led the movement, you know. The one thing that I would say that we can do from a practical standpoint is to work with young researchers and provide them the mentorship and provide them the tactical, practical skills to be able to recognize when they're entering into a partnership that is, you know, detrimental, that is potentially colonialistic to them. And an example of this is there's a, a group called the Association of Future African Neurosurgeons started by my good friend Ulrich Sidney. Um, he's a Cameroonian. He started this organization a few years ago. And the idea was to, again, bring young Africans who are interested in neurosurgery because it's a field that, you know, there are not enough neurosurgeons on the, on the entire continent, but then also to give them practical skills in research. And they've been doing an excellent job in publishing articles in African journals, but also in international journals. And as they've done this, they've gotten more recognition. You know, as they're getting this recognition, they're getting more uh, international uh, universities reach out to them for, you know, partnerships. So 
what can they do from a practical standpoint when they're engaging with universities and NGOs from the global north? You know, again, having that difficult, awkward conversation from the beginning to say, well, what is my role in this? You know, do you see me as, as a partner or do you see me as a data collector? Right, you know, uh, in terms of authorships, what are, what's going to be the contribution? Who are the partners going to be? What are we going to get out of this? Where is it going to be published? So these are some practical things that we can do to advise, especially young and upcoming researchers from quote unquote South. I just want to insert this. Uh, maybe we can adopt uh, the mantra of the newly elected vice president-elect Kamala Harris. I might be the first, but I will not be the last. And so I think that should be our mantra in making sure that we don't lose sight of our responsibility to make sure that you know, we build those capacity, we transfer the knowledge that we were privileged to be gifted with. Oh, amazing, Renzo. That really rounded up exactly. And I think, you know, it goes with the motto of the, of the podcast is mentorship and how important that is and keeping that in mind, not only to further the agenda of our people, but it's just in general, bring everybody to an equitable status. Um, I was just going to change gears slightly into kind of how governments and policy advisors can really further this movement of decolonizing global health. I was reading early in the year when uh, in the pandemic, when the uh, director general of the WHO said, you know, in response to the, the French doctor saying, you know, we should test the vaccine in Africa. And his response was, you know, this goes against um, solidarity. And he even said, you know, we need to stop this hangover from the colonial mentality. I was wondering, what do you guys think of how maybe governments and policy advisors can push this agenda and, and kind of reinforce how we need to um, say think locally but act globally. How do you guys see that happening with governance as such? Do you see it happening? Is it, is it possible? <laughs> oh, that is to me for sure the group that definitely needs decolonizing. I am not worried about young researchers. I think they know the power imbalances. I think they're working on them. I think we can have mentorship programs. I think the group that will struggle for a long time is policymakers and government officials. And to me, I, not to be too practical, I go back again to the financial and uh, funding imbalances and what does that entail and what, what comes with any funding that goes to, from a high-income country or from a, a global north to the global south. And I think that's a big issue that needs to be dealt with. I am not sure... That is something we can do in a short term, to be honest, but that is the biggest issue. No matter how many young people we train back home, not that I say that I'm an expert or think that I have enough knowledge to actually train a lot of people back home, but I think no matter how, pe how many people we send articles or teach how to use statistical programs uh, or have them really work on policies, those people will still have to go work with the, with the government officials. And if a government official still thinks that my voice here, just because it ends with the uh, university of the US, carries more weight, especially if it's a white sounding voice, then really all of our work would not be, would not really add anything to the, and, and would not change the power imbalances. Well, that's a, such a solid answer. And I like how you say that's the exact group that will probably need the most, uh, <laughs> most decolonizing. I wondered if uh, Desmond or Renzo, you have anything else to jump onto that? I agree with Sama that, you know, the governments is they're going to be a hard group to, to work with. And actually, you know, an example of this is when I was at Harvard and working with ministers of health in Tanzania, you know, when they hear the Harvard name, you can get into any 
office, you know, all the way to the presidency with that name. And, and even if what you're bringing to the table is, is not substantive, but there's still that idea that it's, it's, a, it's a big name, big university. And so occasionally when I would run into people in the Ministry of Health who would be like, all right, so what, you know, all right, what, 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 what do you have to offer, right? And be, be a bit critical of that. Then I was, I was quite encouraged um, by that. So I think there's, there's some hope. I also think there are countries like Rwanda, the government of Rwanda has been quite active in making sure that, you know, all the, the, the programs and interventions that are brought in align with their priorities, their agendas. But then also in Tanzania, for research, for example, right, the Tanzanian Ministry of Health has set a policy that, you know, all data that is collected on the health, on, on the health of people in Tanzania is Tanzanian data. And everything that is published has to be approved by the National Institute for Medical Research. And so if you're, if you're looking at this from this policy, from the standpoint of, of uh, an American institute, it's quite an inconvenience that you have to have a local PI on all your papers, on all your projects. Um, you know, the data that you collect does not really belong to you, but it belongs to the government and belongs to the people of Tanzania. Um, that when you want to publish something, it has to go through you know, the body. So this is quite an inconvenience, but I think that it's from, the, again, from the standpoint of the foreign researcher. But I think these are some steps that uh, some countries are taking, but then that, that there's so many issues of corruption and nepotism. There's so many issues with our own governments that we'd rarely talk about in global health, and it, it absolutely bugs me. But these are issues that our governments need to address as well from, from their standpoint. We touched a bit on funders and how they have quite a role to play in this because obviously funding comes with conditions and so forth. Maybe hear from Renzo, you know, what are some of the just the key things that or key recommendations that funders should do or be doing to contribute to decolonizing uh, global health? So when it comes to the funding world, I think there were initial efforts over the past decade to be more aligned with countries' priorities. For instance, we have the Paris Declaration for Aid Effectiveness, where they're really recognizing the importance of listening to ministries of health, what they think should be the priorities. Not anymore that old-fashioned, one-way imposition of, you know, we'll only fund malaria, we're not interested in non-communicable disease. And so there, there's some movement, but definitely we need more, and we need that to happen at all levels, even in, you know, the way we, you know, we hire or we, the, the, the way they hire uh, consultants. You know, for instance, I myself, having returned to the Philippines, been interacting with a lot of these aid agencies. And despite my Harvard degree and my international education experience, I'm treated as a local hire and therefore being paid at a local rate. Of course, I'm not saying that I should be paid the international rate, but I'm saying that there are these asymmetries and you know, discrepancies that exist that are perpetuated by bilaterals and multilaterals who operate in these countries, again, they're definitely coming to the country with good intentions. But I think decolonizing global health is also now about ensuring that there's fairness and equity in the operations of global health, whether the way you hire, the way you, you fund, the way you choose your, 
your research uh, projects, etc. And so uh, there's definitely a lot of measures that can be done by funders, but also by governments to, in a way, sovereignty and voice. We hope governments too will also increase uh, funding for domestic research to also cut the you know reliance from, let's say, external funders. Of course, some countries will be better positioned to, to do that. For instance, the Philippines. And I think now we're starting to kind of graduate from that phase, you know, and, and really recognize we need to fund our own research. We need to build our own capacity so that we can generate world-class evidence for our own consumption, but also we can contribute to global evidence so we can share the lessons that we learned along the way. I, I fully agree with, with what Renzo said, and I think he just added a very important point that I think needs to go along with when we talk about funding is even if a government is hostile to international funding, similar to my to Sajidani's government, the fact that the colonial mentality exists there is just, it's undeniable. So part of the colonial legacy wasn't just, we're funding you and you need to listen to us because we come from the North, but it's those hierarchies, is is the division that is sowed within different aspects of, um, on different um, subpopulations in the country and how that continues until today. That's why I think governments are just very difficult to, to decolonize and we really need to work on them because it feels like that is the component that colonial entities really invested in making sure that it continues to have a colonial legacy even after they leave. It is the funding, but also it is working on the different hierarchical structures within governments that make it almost impossible for me to go and say, we need to increase funding in Sudan for local research, because just there is no mechanism where the voice of younger, I don't want to say female, because it depends on also in different countries, but different groups be heard in a country just because of, and I don't want to put it all on the colonial legacy, but the colonial legacy is a big part of how those governments are structured, which make it, makes it very difficult for me to be able to actually say and speak with my government officials and make sure that we have sustainable structures in place where we don't have power imbalances. I'm not sure how, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I think that is really what we want to work on if we want to change things in the future. We, we need to move beyond just really focusing on young researchers they are there, they're ready, they know what they need to do. And I think people are excited, even if they're not using the terms that we're using here, the $10 uh, words, I think they know. I think we just need to work on governments to make sure that they have the space to do the work they want to do. With the COVID-19 pandemic and the idea that funding for global health wasn't a priority for maybe governments in some governments, and I don't want to say it was all countries in the global south, but I think realizing that you need to put money into your local research because this is an effort, it's it's a global effort. But let me quickly just jump into the next question. I was like, today, you know, there's there's been 50 million reported cases of COVID-19 and 1.2 million people having lost their lives. Most of these deaths have been in America and Europe. And um, although expected to be worse hit, the global south hasn't actually been um, as badly affected. And as Desmond had said, Rwanda, from having anti-epidemic robots to attend to COVID patients, to Vietnam implementing a very restriction, uh, high restriction on movement, thus limiting the spread of the virus, and to almost now negligible levels, they're in the tens. Coming to, to round this up, you know, COVID-19 has really brought to, to the spotlight global health. And I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think of the successes from these countries and what has it taught the world about the global south and will it help change the narrative? 
now that you know they are seeing the wins from the global south i wanted if you guys can jump in so i'm seeing desmond smiling as as was salma so i don't know jump in whenever you you can with your thoughts i think people's heads are spinning because of covid as you know they're wondering what is happening in africa what's happening in you know southeast asia that the cases are not are not high are not as high and the mortality is is not as it's not as low Uh, perhaps a couple of reasons for that, you know, younger population. And we've seen a number of articles that, uh, you know, you mentioned one, Christine, earlier that attributed to poverty, or we saw one that had something to do with, I think it was BBC that published one a few months ago that said that Africans were immune because of exposure to poverty or sometimes yes and that they were living in in the slums because of the closeness of it that it, it that i don't know there was some reason i did something nonsensical something absolutely ridiculous an explanation that that has not come to that people are not talking about is maybe we're doing things right right you know they always expect the worst from you know low and middle income countries but the the, the matter of the fact is that in a lot of countries you know our governments our ministries of health acted fast right with the closing of borders um with uh you know the installing of hand washing stations you know all around accra i mean i saw this around accra and 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 even with the lockdowns i mean especially the lockdown these these were these were hard for the population and it had an impact so that it's it's particularly troubling and it points to the colonial mindset is that you know people expected africa to perish they didn't really think that we had the knowledge and the expertise to manage this type of a, a pandemic that is ravaging italy and and the united states right but also there's there's a there's a type of pride in learning to figure out what have these guys actually done right what can we learn from you know the ministry of health of of ghana or sierra leone um and implement in in the US because you know they've had more recent experience uh, with this type of of pandemic so unfortunately that mindset has led to thousands of deaths elsewhere so that's what that's what I'll say about that i think a lot of governments and there will be a lot of a lot of analysis of what went right and what went wrong with 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 different country responses so we'll learn more but no one can deny that most of african countries dealt with outbreaks before they knew what to do with an outbreak and they were ready to do it and that is just a narrative that no one here in the global north not even consciously subconsciously is willing to accept and i go back not to defining global health but to say if you're taught most of your life that global health is unidirectional that's what you went to school for and that is what you're working on then it's very difficult for you to accept that something can happen in the other direction i think it's a wake up call i am hopeful that will be a space for us to reimagine what it means to share different experiences for different outbreaks for different issues but at the same time I'm slightly pessimistic that might lead to a retreat from the global arena or thinking of global health as something that is a global good I hope that's not the case my I'm I'm still I'm really especially with recent events I'm really um hopeful that it will be a space for us to reimagine how can we learn from different experiences around the globe um my pessimistic side just keeps creeping up so i hope that's not going to be the case and that is fine salma that is fine salma because i think you know we need to have both a reality check but also keep the fire burning right like this this uh positive vision for a better world that needs to to remain you know that fire needs to remain kindling and i think the recent results of the us election should give us some glimmer of hope 
that a better world is possible, you know, that the U.S. can go back to be part of the Paris Agreement and can rejoin the WHO <laughs> and can, you know, address the domestic COVID crisis that they're facing, but also play a more, you know, a greater leadership role in global health, although perhaps a leadership role that is humbler because of the experience that they just had. And now because of that, you know, a new uh, degree of humility, perhaps in a way that is more, you know, listening to others. You know, I remember there's a book by Sir Nigel Crisp, who was the former head of the National Health Service in the UK. It's entitled Turning the World Upside Down. What can the North learn from the South? And so he was already talking about this more than a decade ago. And voila, now is the time to actually put that into practice. When Asia, my region, was first hit by COVID-19, we were able, at least most countries, were able to show how to effectively, immediately contain the virus. I'm not trying to romanticize our experience, but I think there are lessons that can be learned from, you know, the early phase. And, you know, I remember my friend Ngozi Arundu, also a fellow decolonizer, wrote an opinion as well in, in BMJ Global Health about the Global Health Security Index. Why did Johns Hopkins get it wrong? Why did the countries that were top ranking in that index happen to become the countries at the top of this uh, pandemic? And the countries in Asia that were rated not very highly in terms of the index actually were able to contain the virus like Vietnam, like Thailand, like a lot of the countries, you know, in, in this region. So COVID-19 magnified some of these colonial features of global health. But I think it's also providing a window of opportunity to add that optimism that Salma was, uh, you know, having this back and forth a while ago. I think there's a room for optimism and hope. And, you know, just like in the past history, every time there's a disruption, that's actually an opportunity for reset. How can we take advantage of the COVID moment? Wow, wow. That really, really summarizes it all. I think this is a, a very nice, uh, spot to um, to for us to to stop and reflect, but I just want to thank you very much, uh, the three of you, for joining us. It's been such an inspiring you know discussion, and uh, we hope we can continue these discussions even beyond this this particular um, session. And um, finally, please could you share with our listeners where they can find you? So either on Twitter or or Facebook or LinkedIn or any social um, platforms. So for me, just Renzo Ginto on Twitter, in Instagram, in LinkedIn. So very easy to find. And again, thank you very much for this wonderful and inspiring conversation. Thank you. And Desmond? Yeah, for me, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Desmond Tanko, T-A-N-K-O. And on Twitter at uh, Desmond Jumbang. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed uh, the discussion. Thank you. And Salma? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at um, Salma, S-A-L-M-A-M-H-A-B-D-A-L-L-A. It's a long one, uh, so hopefully you'll be able to find it. Uh, but uh, one plug I wanted to, to make is really for the, um, the African convening for the um, Health Systems Global. I think they did an excellent job a few weeks ago where they had a convening by Africans, for Africans that talked about decolonizing global health and uh, health systems in Africa and what that looks like. If you have some time, I think 
you should go and check them out. And thank you very much for this uh, enlightening conversation. Waking up at 5 a.m. has never felt better, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for going out of your way. And for our listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter uh, at mentor underscore podcast, where we'll let you know when new episodes are released. You can listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud by searching for your digital mentor podcast. As always, information on the episode will be in the description box, including how to connect with our guests and also links for more information and resources. As always, our goal is for this podcast to be shared as a resource, so please remember to tell people about us. But sadly, this is our finale episode. Along with sending us your comments and questions, we are asking you, our listeners, to suggest what you'd like to listen to in next season. So please reach out to us on Twitter at mentor underscore podcast or via email using inquiries at yourdigimentor.net. That's inquiries at yourdigimentor.net. So thanks to all of our listeners for continuing to support us. It's been a pleasure bringing you these episodes. Look out for bonus episodes, which will be coming soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a program which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine, and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire, and transform careers worldwide. This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sanger Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sanger's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth. This episode is also supported by social entrepreneurship to spur health. The SESH group uses crowdsourcing to enhance health and health research with a focus on low- and middle-income countries. 